I'm someone who loves trying out different makeup looks, but doesn't really wear much on a daily basis, so I like to focus on making sure I have high quality staples. And whether you like a fresh face, full glam, or somewhere in between, you've probably seen Thrive Cosmetics Viral Tubing Mascara. I've certainly seen it everywhere, you know the one in the turquoise tube? So that mascara, along with all of Thrive Cosmetics beauty products, are certified 100% vegan and cruelty-free, which I look for in makeup, and they've got excellent quality to match. And something I didn't know from all the mascara videos I've seen is that for every product sold, Thrive Cosmetics donates either that same product, another product that is needed more, or a monetary donation. They've worked with over 500 nonprofits to help with a wide range of causes like supporting cancer survivors, people experiencing homelessness, education access, and so much more. Knowing that makes me feel even better about using their products. And I do enjoy using them. Like I said, I like having high quality staples, and so my favorites are products that are multi-purpose, like the Brilliant Eye Brightener. It comes in a bunch of colors, and I like using them as eyeliner, eyeshadow, and even highlighter. Thrive Cosmetics is luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 20% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com thrive. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S, dot com slash thrive for 20% off your first order. Have you ever watched an apocalyptic sci-fi movie and wondered, could any of this really happen? I'm Carrie Bechet, and on Hypothetical, we explore what-if questions two ways, through speculative science fiction and through insight from the world's most brilliant scientists. And spoiler alert, your favorite sci-fi movies aren't nearly as far-fetched as you may think. Time travel with me into our possible futures on Hypothetical. New episodes every Tuesday available on all podcast apps. That's Hypothetical, H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L. I'm Chanti. And I'm Lynx. And you're listening to Muses. Enjoy the show. This week, we sit down with Joel Miller. Joel is an ex-roadie and filmmaker who released his book, Memoir of a Roadie, last year. Joel has toured with some incredible bands such as Stone Temple Pilots, Guns N' Roses, and The Cranberries. What fantastic bands. We discuss Joel's journey into the music world, the day-to-day life of a touring roadie, and some magical moments that happened on the road. We had a lot of fun chatting with Joel, and for those who want to purchase the book, you can find it on Amazon. Enjoy the interview. All right. Welcome, Joel Miller. Welcome to Muses Podcast. How are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you for asking. I appreciate it. We've been looking forward to this one. You're our first roadie that we've had on the podcast. So. I- I assure you I will be your last roadie that you have interested <laughs> in talking to. So I feel privileged for my one and only opportunity. Well, thank you for being here. We usually like to start off just asking, tell us a little about yourself, how you grew up. Um, you had the experience of meeting famous people between your dad's business and growing up in L.A., do you feel that kind of helped you keep your cool later on and that that kind of helped your journey into being a roadie? That's a cool question. That's an interesting one. Yeah. That's, no one's asked me that one yet. So um, my father was a car mechanic and he specialized in English cars. He was, uh, uh, he was English. So um, he would, because some of the cars were really expensive, some people would come through that were, um, 
celebrities. So, uh, you know, sports guys to Jay Leno is a lot in the book. And so um, <clears throat> I don't know if it made me change my mind because like I would get nervous when Jay would come over because it was real cool. And he's a really nice laid back guy. So he's pretty easy to chat to. But like to tangent, one of the things to say, so I met Jimmy Page once and I was totally lame. And at the time, I, I think I was working for Guns N' Roses when I met him. But uh, actually, we'll do the whole story because it's a good one. So All right. All right. <laughs> it's a good one. So I was at a place called The Backstage, which was owned by, he passed away, but it was owned by uh, the drummer from the police's brother. And so I'm hanging out at this table with all these ladies. And just for whatever reason, I'm the only guy at the table. And uh, Jimmy Page just walks in. And he's not like wearing any kooky stuff. I mean, it's just straight him. It's like he walked off the stage. There's no like mustache. So you don't know it's him or, or whatever. And he comes in and he's talking to the dude. And then this lady at our table, she's like, hey, why don't you come join us, Jimmy? So he's like, oh, okay. So he comes over to the table and I'm just sitting there thinking like, no, I mean, holy shit. <laughs> and he, he shakes everyone's hand at the table, but mine. And the only reason is because I was far away. I was on the other side of the table and my girlfriend at the time, she just kept talking and talking because she didn't know who he was and she didn't care. So I'm like, it's, it's just, it's Led Zeppelin, you know, and she's like, I, I don't know who, I, I don't care. I'm like, stairway to heaven? She's like, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I don't know. And so he's sitting at the table hanging out on this lady. She's like, so I used to be one of your groupies back in the early 70s. And he's like, oh, okay, all right. And he got up and left. And I was like, you scared away Jimmy Page. <laughs> and so years later, I was writing with uh, Dean. Dean's uh, the bass player for a band called Toad the Wet Sprocket. And the girl I had been dating grew up in Santa Barbara, which is where they're from. And so she's like, you know, Dean from Toad the Wet Sprocket. And I'm like, bro, you're bigger than Jimmy Page, man. (laughs) (laughs) You're huge, my friend. So, but yeah, anyway, I was totally lame when I met him. But I thought about it. And I think even if Axl Rose was to meet Jimmy Page, he'd be Gaga. I mean, fucking Jimmy Page, man. It yeah, was hard but to keep uh, cool around him. Yeah, yeah, other than that, you you stayed pretty. Yeah, I guess even keel. I don't know how I would. There would um, be a lot. Yeah, I, I uh, I'm not like a starstruck type person. I I like this lady named Nancy Griffith. If you got towards the end of the book, you read she's a folk singer. I mean, I don't think anyone would care. I would be so lame. I think she's awesome. I respect her so much. So Dolly Parton is awesome. Yeah, you know, there's a few people, but I don't think I'd lose my cool more than just be more meaningful when I said it really is an honor to meet you. I, I would actually mean it. <laughs> so, Do you think that growing up in LA had a direct influence on you becoming a roadie? Like if you would have grown up anywhere else in the States, do you think that that would have happened? Or do you think that's kind of, I mean, I guess roadies come from everywhere right not just la but yeah most even people in la most dead people in la are transplants from somewhere else right so i don't think that would have really made a difference but you never know um i was born in england and my parents had decided to stay there and not come to the united states yeah i'm sure it would have been very very different but it was certainly just a circumstance and that this fella came to get his car fixed and needed somebody to help him work and it it was really i guess coincidental He, he needed help they needed, they needed a guy that, you know, a guy at the bottom of the totem pole. 
You also had some interesting jobs before that. Do you feel like any of those prepared you for life on the road? Hell no. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the, so I, you know, I, I did a film years ago. Uh, it's called The Still Life. And I was doing a bunch of interviews and they asked me, what's the big difference between the film industry and the music industry? And I said, well, in the film industry, you guys do a little bit of blow and you think you're all cool. I'm like, in the music industry, we do fucking heroin till we die. <laughs> so the music industry on all levels is much more extreme yeah. than the film industry. The film industry, it's like, a, what's that film? Tropic Thunder with Tom Cruise. Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise is so good. And he's like, you know, fire that guy. So the film industry is that. It's just kind of like, you know, you are doing a fine job, young man, and you're going to be successful fire that motherfucker in the music industry they have the balls to punch you in the fucking head and fire you so it's much more aggressive much more cutthroat you know but you you have it from what my experiences were working on the road's hard it's really a difficult job and you have to be good at it there's not enough guys on any crew even if you're with the rolling stones and your crew is massive everybody is necessary it's expensive to have you there Mm -hmm. And so you have a lot of very competent people in regards to what their job is um, in the rest of life. I, I, I think we could argue that maybe that's not the case, but it's tough. It's tough. And you got to be you got to be hardened to be successful or, or be a lifetime guy is probably it. Yeah. Well, try being a podcaster. I bet it's not fun. <laughs> There's no other cutthroat industry like the podcast industry <laughs> there's a lot of them I, I did a really fun one um i guess maybe a week ago or so it was this husband and wife in ireland and it's in their kitchen and i'm just looking at the washing machine the whole time <laughs> and we had a really good chat and my friend called in the middle and he wrote the movie poltergeist oh. and so they're like no way i'm like yeah you want to talk to him so i put it on speaker and we ended up talking about movies more than music. It was kind of, it was fun. Yeah, it was a little different. So they're an Irish couple with the music podcast. Do you remember? What yeah, it was a music podcast. And um, I should know. I can find out and let you know. Great. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, they were very, very cool. They really were nice people. We had a, we had a good time. Usually their daughter's there who's nine years old and she asks some of the questions and they're like, she is a ball buster. You should be really happy that she's not here. I'm like, I feel like I believe you. That <laughs> so, does sound like a nightmare. Yeah. Tough. Pretty tough. All right. So you're talking about uh, that it was tough out there. So vibing on that, you know, you basically taught yourself to be a roadie by watching and learning. Can you bring us through uh, a basic day in the life on tour? So when I started, it's true. Nobody really gave me any anything. It was just go. So I say in the book, when my first show, I wore a white T-shirt. Yeah. And it's because at the time I wore blue jeans and white shirts everywhere and a wife beater. I always had a wife beater on with the shirt. So it was like, I don't know, it's kind of a common attire at the time. But on the road, it's definitely not the fitting way to be. And so you know what a wife beater is, right? Yeah. Uh, I, okay, we, cool. call, we call it a tank top. Tank top. All right. Yeah. Sorry. <laughs> or a muscle, a muscle shirt. A little, slightly inappropriate. No, anyway. you know what? It's just like, that's what. I used to call it that too until I went, wait a second. Yeah, it's pretty bad. It's just like a tank top, muscle shirt, whatever. I don't own anymore because I don't, I don't have the muscles anymore. So <laughs> I don't have any, any. But I, um, 
I did. I really knew nothing is what I'm getting at. You couldn't be more green. And they just picked me and chucked me out there to see how things would go. And I learned, I, I tried hard to learn, but to answer your question. So what happens is you wake up in the morning, I feel like around six 30 ish and within five minutes you're working. So you have enough time to pee and drink some coffee and go. And the first thing to do is you set the points on the stage. The points are in the sky. So points hang or your motor has a chain. The chain will hang to what's called a point. And all of that connects to truss, which you guys probably know what truss is. Maybe it's the, it's the metal sticks in the sky that have lights on them. Oh yeah. Okay. Cool. So that's truss. So all that stuff needs to get up into the air somehow. And it gets up into the air by motors. So the first thing to do is figure out where you're going to put the motors. Otherwise, you don't know where to lift your rig. We call it a rig. So that's the first thing. Then from there, you got to scurry and get all that crap done because nobody else can work until all the crap's in the sky. So you're busting your butt for the first couple hours, maybe, maybe a little longer, depending on the tour. I don't know, to get it out of everybody's way. Then the guys come in with their backline gear, which is all the instruments and amplifiers and stuff. And they set it all up and then you have people mucking around all day. As a carpenter, lighting guy, a lot of the work is in the beginning of the day, getting it all up. As a stage manager, again, a lot of the work is in the beginning of the day, getting it all up. While the backline guys are getting ready and getting all the instruments tuned and whatever, it's a little more quiet. There's some stuff to do, but it's not crazy. Then when doors open, you become a bit busier again because you need to start talking to the security let them know how things are going to go and the people uh, working on the stage and all the stage hands again just be like okay so this is how it's going to go and the last song is going to be x and i need all you guys to be standing here because we need to get you know, a lot of the soft goods which are the backdrops and whatnot you want to get those out of the way very quickly because they can get damaged and all of the stuff that's maybe obvious i liked the story in your book about uh you cutting yeah. You're cutting it so that it wouldn't like touch the ground or something, but then you didn't realize when it went to the next show that it was Is that again the same very thing? green. Well, it was because it was in Canada, that's why you liked it. But it was uh, <laughs> it was at a place called the Warehouse, which was a which was a neat venue. I liked it. In and Toronto. It was in Toronto. Yeah. Been there many times. Super yeah. cool spot. So I I uh we we performed in places called sheds, and so sheds are pretty much always the same. And your backdrop is made to go to a certain trim height. Remember, we have the rig that all the metal pieces in the air, it goes to trim. Trim is where we end up putting the, it at the night. So when the backdrop comes down, it would go to just above the stage. It kind of all makes sense. And we were in the warehouse and I saw there was a bunch of backdrop on the stage. And I'm like, if I cut it up and I put it around some other stuff on the stage, that would look cool. So I did all that. And then when we got to the next gig and we raised it and it was short by like six foot. It, it yeah, it, it was like, it was like you trimming your skirt in, in high school to where you, you think you're a, uh, you know, Giorgio Armani or something. And you, you do it and you're kind of like, Oh yeah. Oopsie. So I've had that experience bad. with my bangs before. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> They had to get another backdrop made because of me. But <laughs> yeah, it wasn't the it wasn't the smartest thing to have done, but I had good intentions. <laughs> I imagine you like you stay up late, you hang out, you party, whatever, and then you're up at six thirty. So it was hard on your system. Yeah, not so much partying, believe it or not. So depending on your position, so if you're a backline guy, again, instrument fella, 
you you put your gear away because I can't lower the rig now until everything's off the stage. So you get all your stuff out of the way pretty quick. You put it into the cases. You probably have time to take a shower. I hope you do. Maybe get some food or whatever, and you hop back onto the bus and you watch television. So with us, especially as being the stage manager, let's say, you don't have the ability to do that. You're the last one to get on the bus. We do what's called an idiot check, which means you look around the stage looking for any gear that's been left or anything like that. You're literally the last one. So when I would step onto the bus, it was already on. It was running. And we would pull away as I'm walking into the bus. So it's a long, long day. You might have a beer or two. But to be really honest, when you're really after a day that's that long, and it is, it's like three o'clock in the morning, let's say, you're pretty tired. So you're you're probably not doing too much partying. It depends on the tour cycle. So Poison, uh, Brett Michaels and them, they work their butts off. So Brett will do three nights in a row, take one night off, do another four nights in a row, take one night off. And that's really a lot of work for everyone. When I toured with the Cranberries, Dolores didn't like to do more than two shows in a row. So you'd have two days her singing, and then you'd have probably two days off. Uh, at least one day off. And so now you could do a bit of partying because you get that day every now and then to kind of recuperate on STP, on poison. When you had your days off, I'm I'm tired. I'm just, I'm trying to get my engine going again to keep going here. What were some of your favorite and least favorite tour duties? Uh, So favorite, I loved going into the audience and I would pick a kid. And I'd pick a kid and they bring one of their parents and I'd bring them on the stage for a song or two. I like kids. And so seeing their, their whole face light up, A, when you pick them and they're looking like, what do you want? And then you're like, no, you're going to come <laughs> on the stage and you're going to be standing right next to Scott Weiland and you're going to watch him sing his next song. To like, Then the parents are kind of like, oh my God, <laughs> you know, this is going to be great, you know? So you just, you know, which, and what was neat too, is I never once had a parent argue over which parent got to go, which was cool, but I I just didn't want to bring too many people. So it's just one and one. And I love that. I I just love how excited a little one could be. Maybe one day some kid was watching and now they're a musician and it's because of some Brody who brought, brought him up. Also, there's that stigma of us going out looking for girls and bringing them backstage all the time. And it wasn't that. So that's probably my some of my favorite memories or just simply sitting on the stage looking at the audience it's really it's great thing to do I tried to to cross over and explain that in the book I don't know how successful I was but the audience I thought that it was actually touching especially those quiet moments that you had with yourself when you got to reflect on wow i'm i'm here right now and this is really happening and it kind of reminded me of the times when i would travel alone and you're experiencing this wonderful thing and you don't exactly have anyone to share it with at that moment but it it is good enough to be like you're just trying to capture it inside of your body inside yeah. of your memory and yeah. i felt that that did come across yeah so the 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 section i think you're referring to is the one with zach from Rage Against the Machine. Yes, exactly. And it was a very hard part of the book to write because I really wanted to make an effort to try and establish a few things. One, I'm a kid who's a music fan. That's the most, that's it. That's the biggest deal of the whole book. I'm just some guy who likes music. And then the second one is just being in awe and then not wanting to get fired. <laughs> but watching him by myself back there, and I, I really love Rage Against the Machine. So 
watching Zach just like begin, you get chills everywhere. And it was, it was just so, it was so cool. <laughs> so that's the, some of the stuff I liked the most, the stuff I didn't like. So we have what's called the snake. And do you know what front of house is the little booth in the audience? Yep. I work so- at three music venues. So Oh, that's okay. what I do. Okay. So you got to get power. stood there a couple of times. <laughs> it's the best place to see a show. It's yeah. where you go. You don't want to be on the stage. You want to be at front of house. If you can get out there, it's the best place. So to get power out there, you have what's called the snake. The snake is a power source from the stage that goes out there. And the snake is nasty. You know, people piss on it, puke on it, shit on it. It sucks. So you got to pull that in every night and put it into a road case. We call it Cadillac and you roll it into there. That sucks. Uh, the, uh, putting the barricade up and down, that sucks. <laughs> so that's probably the part I hated the most. It, it's awful. It's that makes sense. The hard part of the job, the, the real work. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty hard. I mean, depending on how many people, you know, the snake, like in Rock and Rio, is, is huge. It goes on and on and on. There was a dozen of us pulling it in. It just keeps going and going and going. And it's so nasty. So that's a tough part. That wasn't exactly fun. You just stink and ugh. You can shop from anywhere doing pretty much anything. You might shop while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast. And however you shop, we all know and love the thrill of the hunt. But do you also know how to get the thrill of the best deals? Because Rakuten shoppers do. With Rakuten, they get the deals they love with the most savings and cash back. And you can get it too. Start getting cash back at your favorite stores like Sephora, Nike, and even Expedia if you're looking to get some travel in. And getting cash back doesn't mean you have to miss out on sales because those can just be stacked right on top. It's easy to use and based on a simple idea. Stores pay Rakuten for sending them shoppers and Rakuten shares the money with you as cash back through PayPal or check. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Well, you mentioned a little while earlier about the partying thing being kind of a misconception, or maybe it's a cliche that we just assumed that roadies would do every night, just like as, you know, we're proud groupies, just like there's many like cliches and misconceptions. Some things are true, some things are not. So what are some of the biggest misconceptions about a roadie and which ones, which cliches are true? So it depends again on the tour. If you have time, yeah, you're going to go out and do fun stuff. Fun stuff usually involves drugs and alcohol, I think, when you work in the music industry, at least. So it depends. Also, a lot of bands have an arc. So you're just getting going. It's exciting. You party your ass off. You have all your stories with all your girls and your booze and with your Rob Halford, all your guys. So you, you have your fun. Okay. Then I think like anybody else, you get over that hump a little bit and you realize it's a career. It's a job. Brett Michaels is very business oriented. This is definitely uh, the poison tour was run like a business that they watched everything and they're trying 
maybe this is our last tour, boys. You know, they're, they're trying to make sure they have a way to uh, eat dinner for the next year. So it depends who you're with and what you're doing. Also, partners in crime. If you're on a tour when most people are sober, you're probably not going to party all the time because you're partying by yourself. It's not that exciting. If you're on a tour where everybody's balls to the wall, well, heck, maybe you're the one riding the goat through the bus with the uh, disco ball ahead of you and, you know, (laughs) eating mushrooms. I I don't know. So there's that. So the misconception I would think would be like on school nights. School nights is when we have a gig. When you have a gig, you got a lot of work to do. If you think about it, if you're working for, let's say, Poison, and I mean a couple lovely ladies and they want to hang out and everything, that's all nice. But I'm there to work. And if I'm not going to do my job, you don't think they're going to fire you? I mean, you know, this is a big production with a lot behind it. And uh, you've also got a lot of audience with a lot of expectations. So I don't know the parting to the max of what people would think at the end of the day, you are doing a job and you're doing a job that people will fire you from. So there's that on your days off, nobody gives a crap what you do, like period, nobody cares. And so also in the middle of the day, you could probably leave the venue for a little bit if you know somebody and you could go out and have a bit of fun, but you only have a certain amount of time. Usually your days off are in a city that's not a big city because it's cheaper to put you in the hotel there. And the other thing is, is you're in, uh, let's say, Somerset, Wisconsin, which was one of the first gigs we did. And I don't think we did spend the night there. But nonetheless, let's say you're in Somerset. I don't know anybody in Somerset. (laughs) If we were to do the show, maybe I would have met you. And then the next night you could take me out, which would have been great. But I didn't know you yet. So if you've been around for a few years, now I know you live there. And maybe the next time around, I can give you a ring and maybe you're free and we can go hang out. So it takes a bit of time to get to know people and get things to do. Hope that helps. So your book outlines three major tours that you were part of, Stone Temple Pilots, Guns N' Roses, The Cranberries. You talked a little bit about some of the enjoyable moments being on the side of stage, watching these incredible bands in action. Can you share maybe a memorable moment from each tour? And did you learn anything from each experience? I definitely learn something every single day. And even if it's uh, some of it's like roadie stuff, let's say, you know, how to put together that truss or hang that motor or what a point means or whatever. So stuff like that to just learn. But what I felt the best was I was learning so much about human compassion, human emotions, myself. I was growing up. It's really a coming of age story, which is cliche. That's boring. A lot, a lot of stories are, but I think I was learning about who I was through a very different kind of medium. I love the music industry. It's not about uh, your sexual exploits and it's not about drugs. We all hear, you know, anybody listening to your podcast, like music. I, I love it. And so I was this young guy going through this really neat roller coaster with bands that I loved. I, I listened to all the time. I thought they were great. And I had a great respect for, and I appreciated where I was. I think it's important for everybody to appreciate what you've got going, that you have an hour today to do this podcast with your friend is cool. It's, it's, it's really, it's a good opportunity. Not having it, like, you know, maybe your week wouldn't be as cool. So it's these little things. So some of this different tours, so I'll just say first that comes to mind. So Stone Temple Pilots was neat because I was so green. I didn't know what was going on. And I had grown up across the street from Angela, who was in a band called Fishbone. Fishbone's pretty well known on an independent circuit, I guess. But uh, definitely a a very influential, important band. And I'm I'm a fan. So Angelo was sort of like my big brother in certain ways. And so he didn't know I was going to be there. 
And I was so excited because I, I was ready and I'd been just doing this tour for a little bit. I still didn't really know what I was doing, but my friend was about to come out soon and he'd be like, where am I? What's <laughs> going on? <laughs> so I was excited about that. And that was, that was really neat. The opportunity to watch Scott both per, just fully perform every night was just so mesmerizing. Words cannot describe how incredibly talented he was. And, and Robert is an awesome bass player. And Dean is a fantastic guitar player. Kretzel's a kick-ass drummer. You have a perfect band unit. They are the ultimate rock and roll band. And Scott was just such a beautiful person to me. I've heard horror stories and I, I know there was bad stuff out there, but none of it related to me. He never did anything to me other than treat me like a little kind of kid brother. And he was just so good at what he did. To watch Metallica, Ozzy Osbourne, Howard Stern, you know, sit there and watch him perform every opportunity they could is a magical experience when you're getting paid to be there every single day and you're 22 years old on top of it. It makes you feel special and it makes you feel special in a really grandiose way. So that was STP. Uh, the next one would be, well, I think Guns N' Roses. So Guns N' Roses, I'm a diehard fan. It was the first so I'm a kid, they had Sam Goody was in the, in the malls and I could only afford to buy a tape and a CD. I couldn't buy both. I had Def Leppard Hysteria and I had Guns N' Roses Appetite. And what's a guy supposed to do? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I, bought, I bought Appetite on CD because it was, it was more important to me, but my CD player didn't work. <laughs> and I listened to Hysteria more times than I can even explain. <laughs> <laughs> so when I got to work for Guns, it was, uh, I used to say it was my Rolling Stones to put it in perspective, but it wasn't. It was my Guns N' Roses. It was nothing to do with Rolling Stones. It was the ultimate band I could ever want to work for. And when I met Axel, again, it's this talent that you can't really say anything bad about. He's a tough person. There's no question. He's a difficult guy. But when he'd walk out and he'd perform, when you see him play the piano, you're like, you are fucking amazing. You are so talented, dude. You know, you rock, bro. <laughs> Whatever way you want to put it. Very neat stuff. So with guns, I think honestly, it was just the opportunity to, to hang out with Axel, to see him sit on a stage and just be like a regular person. You know, with, with, the, with the STP guys, I didn't know what to expect. And it was kind of neat that they were all like older brothers and they were cool to me. With Guns N' Roses, I really didn't know. What's a really mega superstar like? You know, nothing against the STP guys, but, but what's, what's he like? And when he was just like a regular person, for better or for worse, it kind of made me feel good knowing that we're all just regular people too. And, and I, I, that was something I took from it. I also really loved watching Buckethead play. The guy is just incredible. <laughs> so, so talented. You, you pick your band. You could pick anything, anything kooky. He could play it on the guitar. The guy was amazing. That was neat. Poison, I think, is next. Poison was interesting in that it's such a well-oiled machine. Brett is such a talented business person and such a genuinely nice guy. You know, he, um, there's no real bad press about him and it's for a reason. He's not a bad guy. I wasn't a Poison fan. And so I, I would make fun of their music and they didn't care at all. <laughs> uh, I literally did shave my head every day on stage and revolt of the long hairs because you <laughs> But then when I, I took off my snobby music guy hat, it sure is a fun show. You know, if you're going to have a really good time, kick off your shoes, wear something stupid because that's what everybody wore in the 80s. You're at the right place and everybody's having a good time. It's a really fun show to watch. 
but I was impressed on the business aspects of Poison um, and, and how well they ran something. And a tour is a very difficult thing to run. You're, you've got a lot of things going on. There's a lot of people, there's a lot of substance abuse problems and, and you're trying to keep it going. It's hard. So that was interesting to me. With the Cranberries, I had been told that Dolores was difficult. And, and honestly, maybe it's because she was a woman. I was a little more fearful of her barking at me than the guys. And so I, I definitely stayed away from her, not wanting to get into trouble or piss her off or anything. And as I got to know her, because in time, no matter what you do, I really began to like her. She was a really beautiful person. What happened was, was a tragedy. It's very sad. Yeah. But um, I think that was what I learned from that tour most is that don't believe everything you hear and give people an opportunity and they may surprise you. And she was fun and funny. And I, I, I liked her as a person by the end of it, when I honestly did not expect to. I expected to stay quiet and just get another tour under my belt. That's really interesting that of all of them, she's the one that people were like, oh, she might be difficult when maybe she was just, she had her opinions on how she wanted her tour to go. She was difficult. She was? <laughs> yeah, yeah, she's difficult. She was difficult. She was, she was, uh, I think honestly bipolar to be really honest. Uh, I, I don't know. I don't want to talk out of line. I might be wrong, but I, I think I'm probably right. She was difficult. Axel's very, very difficult. Prince was very, very difficult. Yeah. I've been told Madonna's difficult to work for, but Madonna's difficult. I've been told again is because she's very business oriented. She really watches everything and she's tough. Yeah. So really what it means is, uh, oh, you're a good business person. You're difficult. I don't know. Those are, they're bad things per se, but um, yeah, she, she wasn't, she was a bit difficult. Yeah. It's not like she was super easy. Gotcha. That was a, a great and detailed answer. I'll give you a little break for a second. Do you want to hear my number one roadie story? Absolutely, dude. Okay. So a lot of people think that because of the affiliation with the podcast and because, you know, Lynx and I call ourselves feminist groupies, um, that the opportunity that I got was through this channel. But actually, when I was working as an elementary school teacher, which I did for like seven years in the last couple of years teaching links and I started the podcast, I no longer do that. So that was before but I was working as a grade one teacher. So these kids are like seven years old, seven and eight years old. And one of my students fathers was a roadie. And yeah, yeah. So he would show up in the mornings and he would like when, when he wasn't on tour and he would bring all of the teachers, like her, this year, teacher, the teacher that she had before that. And like one other one, like he all he brought us all coffees and stuff, like super nice guy and got to know him a little bit. And then I stopped working at that school board. I moved provinces completely and I stayed friends with not only him, but his wife and a couple of other parents just like on Facebook or whatever. And so Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers have always been like my number one favorite band. And one day he messaged me and he goes, hey, Shanti, my friend Stan does lights for Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. And they're coming to Toronto on July. It was their last tour. And he's like, do you you want Stan to hook you up with some passes? And I was like, Yes, please. (laughs) So then he introduced me to Stan and Stan got me and a friend 
backstage passes to Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers last tour where we were, we, besides anybody that worked, we had that pass that said Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers lights, like crew, all access. And we stood on the side of the stage and we went up to front of house with Stan while he was doing the lights. And it was the most incredible experience, but it was a beloved roadie. I loved I love Tom Petty too. I love Tom Petty. Yeah. See, we're not all bad people. (laughs) (laughs) It's like one in every hundred, though. That's the truth of the matter. (laughs) Good to know. No, that's probably no, I shouldn't say that. There's probably two in every hundred. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it seemed suddenly, kind of right before your trip to Asia, the roadie life ended. Why the abrupt finish to this career? I think I felt after having done guns, I had got to to the end of the line. I had worked for the, I'm a young person at the time. I'm uh, let's say 24 years old and I didn't know where my life was leading. And I didn't know if I'd want to be a roadie forever. Again, it's hard. The second side is it's actually lonely too. It's Mm. really lonely. So I was beginning to think maybe this isn't what I'm meant to do forever. Also, I wanted to have, I wanted to make money and I was seeing as a roadie, maybe I would never make enough for me to, to want, uh, you know, I wouldn't get to the level I'd want. And I just wanted to maybe explore other things, but the, a lot of it had to do with, I worked for guns and, and that was it. That was the top. I felt like my story was finishing up. So I didn't quite know. And then with my father getting ill and whatnot, I was sort of like, well, maybe I should stay home a bit uh, rather than just be gone all the time. And, I just began to think about other stuff in life and I tried making the movie that I made and um, try something different. So I guess that there was no real reason other than just moving forward with other stuff. Different interests. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I think that was Part it. Of just... Growing up to just exploring, expanding your horizons and everything. Yeah. Just kind of see where uh, this guy once told me, you know, where to hang your hat. I love the say I love it because it's such a simplistic idea of where to hang your hat, where where to be. Yeah, and uh, I think that's where it was. I wasn't sure, but I wanted to try a bunch of stuff while I was young enough to do it. I had yeah. no tie downs. I didn't have any kids. I wasn't married. I didn't have a house. I didn't have any dogs. I mean, there was nothing to keep me anywhere. So I just wanted to see what else I could do. So as you know, we are a feminist groupie podcast. Yeah, I wanted to discuss a little bit. A little bit about the misogyny in the roadie and music community in general. Mm -hmm. A couple times women are referred to as whores. There's some stories that could be considered a little cruel that were kind of encouraged by other roadies, cruel behavior. When you look back, does it kind of shock you that that was considered normal and like encouraged? And why do you think that kind of behavior was accepted in this community? And has your opinion on groupies kind of changed over the years okay so i'm gonna hit it head on no doesn't surprise me one bit Mm -hmm. so probably not the answer you want but it's what i think is the truth i mean my 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 feelings are so much different now when working on the book i have a good friend of mine in new york and his wife was this is i don't know fiance i don't his his lady he just had a baby with her so it was disgusted (laughs) and she's like i don't ever hang out with your friend again It doesn't make me feel good. But the other side of it is I wouldn't want to put a story together that wasn't true because what's the point of reading it Mm -hmm. if it's not accurate, if it's not, if it's not right. So 
I definitely downplayed a lot. I, I, I don't, I try not to go too much into any of the sexy stuff. You know, you don't, you don't need to hear guys war stories and the ex, explorations into whatever. And especially now I don't care. I've had the same girlfriend for 10 years and my mom's probably my best friend, <laughs> but it is part of the industry. Why it's accepted. You're dealing mostly with males almost all it's very rare to have a female on on a tour or rare ish i think would be fairer to say and so when males all get together we're idiots <laughs> and we sometimes do stupid things uh you have a lot of women who are you know i'll do whatever it is to get backstage and that's cliche but it's kind of true a lot of them you'll hear that sometimes quite a lot of the time actually but it doesn't mean they're going backstage and then they're like let's all get naked now it, that's not it <laughs> It's not how, at least from what I saw, you know, maybe honestly, maybe sometimes, but most of the time, no. So it's just like, I wanted to get backstage. You're backstage. You're sitting there watching the song and you're like, okay, I'm ready to go back out to the front of the house now. <laughs> like it isn't it actually isn't as good here as I guess. Well, it's made to see from the front, not the side. So there's that. But um, I think that answers it. I don't know if there's a specific one that you want to delve into. We can, but. I was going to say on a more positive note, if you want to talk a little bit about Muggs and Susie and their roles as well, because there are women yeah. who were working that you, you know, were around as well. Yeah. So Muggs is one of my buddies. I still talk to her all the time. She might actually come over today with her little dog that she just got. Amazing. <laughs> and, you know, all these characters too, that the names are different. And also there, uh, there might be a few characters, just so you know, they're not necessarily all one particular person. It, it is a book story. So with her, you know, she kept being a roadie. She's tough, man. She's tough as nails, but she also, she, she recently quit her gig and she's like, I'm just sick of being around all these assholes. I don't need this anymore. Yeah. And I get it. But, you know, being a girl on the road, especially not a bad looking one is tough. It's really tough. A lot of these guys are not the intelligentsia of society. That being said, tough women are maybe not more prevalent or maybe just maybe more outgoing about being tough. There's nothing wrong with it these days. And you can deal with quite a lot of ladies that can hold their own. <laughs> and, and so I think there's more women in the music industry now uh, on the touring side, at least, mm -hmm. than there was before. Yeah, seems to be. And mm -hmm. I think it's important like you said, to be honest about it, because if you're not honest about it, then we can't also learn from things, right? The story is what it is. You know, it, it is what it is. I don't think it's too bad either. I was talking to a female reporter who I'm kind of friends with, actually, but she said it. she felt good in that she, she would let her daughter read the book when her daughter is 15 years old. I was like, really? She goes, oh, there's much worse out there, hon. She goes, but yeah, no, I would have no problem with that. And that made me feel good too. That's, that's neat. I, th I think that's good. But yeah, I, I try to downplay a lot of the sex stuff. And a lot of it's because if you want all that, read Motley Crue's book. I heard there's a ton of it in there. Go for it, you know, but that's not exactly. my story. That's yeah. Not yeah. My story's not necessary. Yeah, and it's like I'm that generation of groupie two things, I think, started to get really kind of confusing. Um, it seemed a little bit more clear cut back in the 60s and 70s. You know, the girls that would walk, you know, to the back of the venue, knock and be welcomed on stage. And that's it. And that's all you really had to do to go and hang out. Things were a little bit more simpler. Things started to get kind of hairy in the 90s and the early aughts. And um, yeah. 
In the eighties for sure. Oh yes. Of like course. a hair metal in the eighties. Yeah. But now I think we can all kind of step back and look at it as like uh, in its entirety and seeing it as a machine of all of these moving parts that everybody needed to be there and everybody had their own role and none of them like and they all played an important role in their own way so see again though with me it's like it was this human aspect i don't know if you remember there was a part where i met this girl at target was yes really yes you know and i put that in there where i think a lot of people it's a long book it's 500 pages and and initially so i wrote it because i had cancer at the time i, I had melanoma and i was like man if i croak my nephews are going to think i was this boring dude I wasn't that boring so I wanted to write it so some of the stuff in there might be boring to people but maybe for my family it wouldn't be that was my initial thought and so that girl segment would probably be one that why is this in here but it was in there for the purpose to show that oh wait a minute here you know what's going on look at this look at how these people actually live when you sit down which I did I sit down and have my cocktail and you listen to her speak you're kind of thinking oh wait a, the, the roller coaster needs to slow down a bit these are people that you're learning about and this this girl's life was tough no I, I got it, it for sure and, and then, then you have the other aspect with the woman at the table who was going to go back to Sully, you know, and she's just, and I tell her, you know, you stupid bitch, blah, 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 which is totally crude and immature, but it's absolutely what happened. It's pretty much verbatim of, of exactly what I said. And so for better or for worse, yeah, that was probably pretty negative. What's there to achieve, you know, but you're some little dickhead guy, you know, us guys. And you're being encouraged by like all these other people too, right? Oh yeah. They're sitting there giggling away. Cause but, you know, she poked the bear. I told her, you don't want to know what I think. There's a reason I'm not talking to you. So the guys in their young twenties are very immature. A lot of us, and that right. has a lot to do with it. A lot to do with it. But that being said, I never saw anything too aggressive either. I, I wasn't, I never saw any like women manhandled or any kind of abusive things. I never even saw any music guys rude or anything odd to any woman that I recall ever. Nothing. That's you know, great on. And Scott had a, a tantamount, a very large respect for women. I don't know if I say it in the book, but if he saw any woman kind of being groped in the audience, he stopped the show and he'd start yelling at the guy and he'd say, you know, what was it? It's always, I did put this part of the book, but he'd say the same thing every time. You know, you ever been to prison, little man? You know, I have. Oh, fuck you in the ass. You ever been <laughs> fucked in the ass? And he, it was always the same. He'd say the same thing every time. And then if you grab me, a handful of that dude's hair over there. I'll let you backstage. And I'd be like, oh great. God. Thanks, Scott. That was fucking awesome. <laughs> so, always did that. But he was watching the audience. And if he ever saw that, he would stop the show. You think you're tough? I've uh. been to prison. You know, it was always the same thing. So he had a lot of respect for women. Yeah. That's incredible. What an amazing guy. Amazing guy. I, I truly think so. I do. I liked him. I, yeah, you know, I, I, I they asked me in one interview, what, what is it? What did you feel like when Scott died? And it's funny. They don't ask me about how I felt when Dolores died. They always ask me how I felt when Scott died. I don't know why. I don't know. But I mean, what are you supposed to say? I, I felt like I felt shitty when, when it's somebody who you respect, you like, and you know, they're going to die eventually from drugs. You just, it's going to happen. You think, and it does, it's a bummer. But I'm like, the bummer is it's like, I got these cool stories that maybe his kids won't get to have because they're not going to get to know their dad. Yeah. They have their own stories and they're, but their dad was a cool guy. <laughs> I liked him. And that's what hurts. I see Chris Cornell there. It's the same thing. His daughter 
is badass. <laughs> she's right? beautiful. She's an amazing singer. I mean, she's on it. She's got this. Oh, yeah. She's, she's gonna going places it, for sure. Yeah. I hope so. We all hope so. We all want her to because we all love her dad. Mm-hmm. But it's for the kids. That's the sad part. You know, I hope Scott's, I don't know if you know, but Scott's son uh, just did a, a song. I don't know if it's an album or a song, but I heard a song. He sounds like Scott. He did yeah. it with Slash's kid. And then the, somebody else in the band, their dad is also from a big band. Check it out. It's worth listening to. It's Amazing. really, really good. It's Next really generation great. coming in. Next generation. So I hope his son, you know, ha- has a, a, a healthy future. <laughs> but it was very cool to listen to. You'll like it. It's very good. If you're an STP fan. I, oh, I huge. Absolutely. Yeah. You'll love it, man. It's very, very good. So, and I love all the cross too, with Chris Cornell doing the patience, you know, because I hate I've comedy. been listening to that. Like, oh, it's so good, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. His voice is just like no others. Oh, and Scott's too. Yeah, they're good. You know, my biggie is um, I like Blind Melon a lot. And I don't understand why they don't include Shannon Hoon in that circle of, you know. It's true. God. There's a documentary on him coming out that looks really good, though. So all hopefully. It. I love, yeah, I it's true what you said i think before you started the interview it was such a really good time to be touring it, it, yeah. for the, the music level was really good and then again and bringing back feminism into it, there was quite a lot of bands who were zach was very aggressive into uh women rights and then uh, louise yeah. veruca sold i said the beautiful women of louise. But i it's got a seven I, on here i say it because louise is a friend of mine and she was in my film <laughs> i love louise i love veruca salt so much they're amazing really good she's a cool cat i like her she's she's uh she's also very uh very firm very smart you know, very on top of her game very talented she's a good mom too she's got a little she's got a daughter so and all still touring and working and yeah yeah yeah, that's yeah, it was kind of good. I put my little hint in there. I'm like, and it's cool to see a female fronted rock band with beautiful, talented ladies. And kind of like, <laughs> for you, Louise. <laughs> yeah. So, is music still a big part of your life? I think so, but I, I don't listen to as much as as uh, I listen to a lot of classical music. And it's funny because you could be like, so who's this? Is this like Mozart or Beethoven? I'm like, I don't know. But like, and you listen to it hours and hours every day. Yeah. <laughs> So I listen to quite a bit of classical and um, I still like, I love the counting crows and and stuff like that, but I'm not listening to as much music as I used to. I've been working on an audio book and you can't listen to music while you're recording. So I haven't been listening to too much lately. Right. So yeah, I guess that was kind of wrapping up. One of our last questions is what are you working on right now? Yeah. So the audio book I thought would be a lot of fun and it's actually really hard. I don't know how good of a job I did, but, because you got, I'm realizing like if you're an actor, it's a lot better <laughs> to do an audiobook. But I think it's pretty good. And so I've been working my butt off on that. I'm done recording. And uh, I wrote a song with Dizzy from Guns N' Roses, and we're going to mesh it into the audiobook. So that's the next step. It's just getting that in. And then I work as an art dealer. So I, um, I do a lot of memorabilia. I have the original handwritten sheet music for Pink Floyd The Wall right now at Michael Kamen's personal manuscript. So I've been kind of geeking out on that. And there was like a reality show we were going to put together based on it. But now it looks like uh, Pink Floyd's going to be doing a museum exhibit that's going to be in LA and uh, they'll be on display there. So I've been trying to put that together too. So kind of some neat stuff. That's so cool. Kind of neat. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, kind of neat. That's like super awesome. (laughs) Super cool. Yeah, it's, you know, speaking of feminism. So I had a lot of Stevie Nicks stuff too. Uh, I've, I've sold most of it now, but I had her top hat from Rumors. I had her tambourine. I had 
uh, some really incredible, I'll say artifacts of Stevie Nicks. And I can see now in your face too. I'm a big fan too. I think, <laughs> I think Landslide is maybe the most perfect song ever written. So that's kinda. cool that like all your passions sort of come together still. They kind of are there. Yeah. It, it's kind of neat how, how just life goes. It's just how, how, how things be put together to, to work out. So I like the memorabilia thing. It's, it's enjoyable every now and then I get something that I'm kind of like, this is, this is cool. <laughs> this, yeah. this is uh, the Pink Floyd sheet music. I can't hold without all the hair on my hands, just, or on my arms, just standing up. It's just such an amazing thing to have. So there's that. And it's good. You know, we all just keep chugging along and we'll see. And Maybe another book, but if so, it's probably going to be a little while, <laughs> a little bit more of an undertaking than I anticipated. I said to my friend, I, uh, I dedicated the book to him, but he wrote the movie Poltergeist. And years ago, he had seen my film and he liked it from a producing aspect. He thought it was pretty neat what I put together with so little money. And um, he's like, you know, we should work on something together. And I was like, yeah. He's, <laughs> so I came back the next day and I'm all, you know, I've been thinking, I'm all, we could write a movie together called Poltergeist four <laughs> you get it now but back then it wasn't done he's like get your fucking ass out of my office so he's been bugging me to write a story about being a roadie for a, a, over 10 years and i just didn't want to and i started to go back through these these files i had and, and uh, like diary entries i guess journal mm-hmm. and I, I started laughing some of these stories were so funny you know and then some of them were not, I, I don't know, but I was kind of like, yeah, maybe I should. And so I started working on it and really enjoying all aspects. And when I, I was getting close to finish, I hate it because <laughs> you spend so much time on it. And I called them. I'm like, dude, so writing a shitty screenplay is hard, but writing a shitty book has been really, really tough, man. So <laughs> it's been a bit of a, it's been a lot well, of a learning career. I mean, we enjoyed it. I I laughed. I cringed. <laughs> like it was great. <laughs> okay. Well, I hope to get a lot of the laughter and yeah. yeah. I didn't. I didn't try to offend, but it's an interesting thing to point out to see what people will say. You know, I learned and get as got older that women are a lot more astute than I thought. Maybe as a kid, you know, they they know when when you're giving them the look of like, hey, you're cute. <laughs> they get it. You know, there, there's certain things. And then, you know, my mom, yeah, she's heard worse at this point. So you kind of say, like, I'm not as worried to be honest. Yeah. I think that a lot of honesty will help all of us in, uh, in all aspects. So for sure, honesty and reflection and growth i mean it's like you said it's coming of age you're you're learning things along the way we're all one of the verm yes (laughs) we're all all in this together man yeah well is there anything that we didn't mention that you would like to talk about before we say goodbye girlfriend advice (laughs) oh sure yep yep we could do that for an exclusive (laughs) patreon content i'll call you afterwards and see i don't know (laughs) no i don't know i think this has been fun i really appreciate the opportunity and i mean that thank you very much uh, it's been good i think your guys's podcast is both interesting and fun and i I, kudos to you thank you so much and congratulations on writing this book i'm so happy that we got to read it and chat with you and where can people find it if they'd like to read it for themselves the big beast of Amazon, the all controlling Amazon. <laughs> it's kind of neat how they set it up. And through Kindle, it will tell you how many pages are read a day. So roughly 5,000 pages a day are read of Memoir of a Rody, And we hit the 250,000 page mark 
at the turn of the year. Wow. So impressive. The tentacles of Amazon are, inc- are amazing, you know? All so, right. Congrats on that. Yeah. Kind of crazy when you're, you're looking at it and I'm like, oh man, how many people read that stupid story? <laughs> you <know? laughs> oh, yeah. Boy. You're not thinking about that when you're right, ra- when you're writing it. But that's so cool. Believer in it is what it is, and for better or for worse. Not to say you can't learn from the stupid things you do, but they're done. Build yourself, make yourself better, all that kind of good. That Stuart Smalley, you're good enough stuff talk. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, well, I hope to talk to you both again. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much. This really was a lot of fun. Muses is researched, edited, and produced by us, Chantelle Mew and Lynx O'Leary. Have you ever watched a futuristic sci-fi movie and wondered, but wait, could any of this really happen? And will I live long enough to see it? That's what our show Hypothetical is about. I'm Carrie Bechet, and on this podcast, we ask what-if questions about the future. Like, what if we could read minds? What if the world's digital data was erased all at once? What would happen if the Yellowstone supervolcano erupted? Then we explore that question two ways, through speculative science fiction and through dialogue with brilliant scientists. The result is a genre-bending narrative that's interwoven with real facts provided by literal geniuses. And, spoiler alert, a lot of the science fiction out there, it's not nearly as far-fetched as you might think. Come time travel with me into the future on Hypothetical. New episodes on Tuesdays available on all your favorite podcast apps. Just search Hypothetical. That's H-Y-P-E-R-T-H-E-T-I-C-A-L.